So, wow, everybody, I can't believe we're at episode 20. I get so excited every time we reach a new milestone. Me too. And if you knew how long it took us to write episode one on Brittany Locklear and how many times we recorded that episode, y'all would laugh. We were so nervous. Yeah. And for those of y'all who have, you know, not been listening since the beginning of our show, we just want to take some time to reintroduce ourselves. And so my name is Brittany Hunt. I'm a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. I'm a big reader. I'm really into Harry Potter and I'm just a nerd in general. And I'm Chelsea Locklear. I'm also a member of the Lumbee Tribe. I enjoy traveling, joking around with my mama, and just making connections with folks. I want to shout out my husband also, Dakota Lowry, who does the edits for our podcast each week. A role I roped him into when Brittany and I first started, and we did not know the cadence of the show, and I told him it would be like twice a month, so sorry about that. But thank you for dealing with our constant bloopers and saying, let me start that sentence over, a dozen times each episode. Yes, which we'll probably do as you're fixing the bloopers in this episode as well. So thank you, Dakota. You put a lot of work into making these episodes seamless, so we appreciate it. And here we are, 20 episodes later, and we actually have two stories for you all today, so both are young Lumbee people who are missing, one man and one woman, both who vanished with no clues as to their location. And these are the stories of Jessica Lowry and Troy Jacobs. Jessica Lowry was a 25-year-old Lumbee woman living in Lumberton, North Carolina, which, as we've mentioned before, is Brittany's hometown. She was young, vibrant, and had three young children, Justin, Destiny, and Michael. Here's Jessica's father describing her. Jessica was uh, a sweet girl. She, uh, I know, uh, when she was little and everything, she'd come and uh, she'd stay with me some on the weekends. Well, and my, my mother pretty much kept her on the weekends. She'd come and stay with me, and then she'd go stay with her grandmama, my mother. And as she got older, you know, in high school and everything, and when she got out of school, uh, she started working with some company, um, uh, holding flags, you know, in uh, in the middle of the road. But she was a sweet girl. I mean, uh, she was likable. She was lovable. She had a lot of friends. And on December 20th, 2005, just five days before Christmas, Jessica made the decision to leave home late at night to walk to a friend's house in Lumberton. At the time, Jessica was living with her mama, and there were reports of an altercation that ultimately made her leave home so late. You know, after all, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and so, you know, certainly not an ideal time for anybody to be out walking, especially not in Robinson County, where so many roads have very few street lights, and where, you know, there's a very high homicide rate, which we've reported on in the past. And that night, when Jessica left home, would be the last time that her family would ever see her. Witnesses last reported seeing Jessica on Beam Road just outside of Lumberton. As Brittany stated, she was living with her mama on Bollinger Avenue, which was in the city of Lumberton. And if you look at the distance on Google Maps, it's just over five miles away from Bollinger Avenue to Beam Road, and which for folks in Robinson County, that would be a very long walk. I mean, once you get out of the town of Lumberton, there 
are no sidewalks. I mean, there are not many sidewalks in many places in Lumberton because like I said, it's a very rural county we live in. It's very rural very quickly. So there's not a ton of people just kind of out and about walking, especially at that time of night. Yeah, and my cousin, one of my cousins is actually, uh, she grew up on Bollinger Avenue and then another one of my cousins lives on Beam Road now. So I know exactly where those are. And so Bollinger Avenue is kind of in a subdivision. Like it's, there's a lot of houses around, but Beam Road is a lot more rural. And once you get out of the subdivision that's on Bollinger, it's you you get like Chelsea said, you get into rural areas very very fast. Um, and so making that walk is just um, very treacherous, I would assume, and very just un- unlikely that a person would just want to willingly do that at three o'clock in the morning. So that's true. And you know, it's also really hard for us to find any reports on exactly what time she left home that night. So what? other reports say is like I said earlier is that she was spotted at three o'clock in the morning on Beam Road but we don't actually know if that was Jessica or for somebody who just looked like Jessica but uh, we're not really sure what time exactly that she left home uh, walking that evening so she could have left at 10 11 you know at any point but we do know that you know it's a distance of about five and a half miles away and so that would take the average person about two hours to walk And let me tell you that my rump would be scared to death walking at that time of night in Robinson County or anywhere, really, especially in 2005, when I imagine she probably didn't have a cell phone, which, you know, I use my cell phone for a flashlight all the time. So, you know, if she didn't have any kind of light to see, well, it would be really hard to travel that far of a distance. Yeah, I I would personally never be able to make that walk especially not at night not even in the daytime would I make that walk unless I really feared for my life or I had no other no other choice or options but um you know like you said you know I I, I just would not you would not be able to catch me outside at all at that time but I also read that she was wearing a black shirt blue jeans Reebok shoes and a black and white Harley Davidson jacket and so she was definitely not wearing bright clothing at all you know where she would have easily been seen on that road right and but let me just say that much like kent jacobs the other week she was true to her lumby self and our love for all things harley davidson y'all if you're not from robinson county you would just not believe how much we as people love harley stuff yes it's definitely a fixture in lumby culture i definitely have multiple harley coats even our tent my 10th grade pictures in high school was with a Harley. So they brought a Harley Davidson in and, and I like have a picture of me posted up below to Harley. So it's definitely a big part of our culture. From the beginning of Jessica's disappearance, things were a little shaky. When I was interviewing Jessica's father, I actually found out that he didn't find out that she was missing until a week after she had been reportedly you know, gone. At that time, her family had notified the police, although it's unclear how long she'd actually been gone before they realized something wasn't right. So another thing to remember is that she disappeared on December 20th, so just a few days before Christmas, and we know how busy the holiday season can be. There's just always so much going on, and I could see how during that week, her family might think she's somewhere else, like spending time with another relative or, you know, other friends during the holidays. Yeah, and that could have definitely been a factor as to why the word about her missing was slower to get out, especially if her daddy didn't even find out until almost a week or so later. And he said that while they didn't see each other every day, they were in very regular contact with each other. And then here's a clip of him describing their relationship. Mary should call me. She called me once or twice a week. And sometimes she'd, she'd uh, call me and then pop up here and stay with me for a few minutes before I'd leave to go to work. 
stuff. But most of the time, she'd leave, leave me a message on my answer machine to tell me how much she loved me. I love you, Dad. Um, don't work too hard. Yeah, and, and, and I missed that too. I cannot imagine the shock he must have felt once he found out, you know, to know that it was during the holidays and he just, you know, wasn't sure if he'd get to spend another Christmas with Jessica. Yeah, and there were a couple of searches conducted for Jessica after she went missing, and her daddy says that he tried his best to follow up on every single lead or tip. But just like in so many of the other stories that we've shared, her case turned cold very quickly. In the many years since her disappearance on that December night, she has not been seen or heard from. She didn't have a cell phone at the time, but there has been no evidence to suggest that she just disappeared on her own to start a new life. She had three young children and a host of family and friends that lived with her, even though this was a, you know, kind of a more challenging time in her life. And Jessica's life was by no means perfect, but she didn't deserve to become the victim of foul play. Here's her dad again talking about Jessica's son, Justin, the following Christmas after she disappeared. And I remember Kima coming in that first day when he spotted that Christmas tree. And he went to cry and he said, Papa, you know what? He said, I know you got me a gift. All the gifts you got me up under that tree, I'd rather have my mama back. And it like ripped my heart out when he said it. Her family, also like many others, have had to deal with years of rumors and speculation. Here's her daddy speculating about what he says he has heard over the years has happened to Jessica. Some things that happened, what I was told, the night she left, she left walking and was going to go to a friend's house. Well, um... So what I was told, that, in which I, I went and found the mother and the daughter where she was supposed to went that night. So the mother told me that she ended up there that night. Well, her daughter said she did. So that, that, was, that just threw me for a loop. She did and she did. Jessica had just turned 25 years old when she disappeared. If she were with us today, she would be a 40-year-old woman in the prime of her life. Her family still wonders where she is and would love to bring her home. Her daddy still has her Christmas gift from that year that she never came by to get. I hope everything comes to light. I hope to God that I find out where she's in or regardless of what it is. It's just that, like I tell people at Christmas time, and I still got her Christmas gifts still here. Wow. that year. Yep. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Jessica Lowry, please come forward and give this family some closure. It's been 15 years since she's been gone. The majority of her children's lives that they have been left to wonder where their mama is. Before we turn over to our next story, we'd like to mention Monica Kaysen of the Q Center for Missing Persons. So Q stands for Community United Effort, and this center is out of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is about an hour and a half away from Robinson County. So Jessica's daddy told us that Monica and her team have provided so much help over the years in getting more attention to Jessica's story. So she helped create a Facebook page for Jessica, a website, and she even suggested to the family that they submit their DNA to the Sheriff's Department in the event that if they do find any evidence linking back to Jessica that they would have something to quickly match it to and she's just been a tremendous resource to their family and really just an advocate for the families of missing persons. Monica also has volunteers that come from across the country to help lead in searches for missing persons. She has been in Robinson County several times 
In the story we're about to share next, Monica has also been involved in their case as well. So we'd just like to send a huge thank you to her and the Q Center for their efforts to step in and help so many hurting families in our area. I actually reached out to Monica for an interview and additional information, but have not heard back yet. So if anyone knows how to get in touch with her, please let me know. But we'll get on into our next story. So, Troy Jacobs was a 21-year-old Lumbee man living in Hope County near Red Springs, North Carolina, which is really close to Lumberton, about 10 or 15 minutes. And he went to a convenience store one night in 1996 and was never seen again. For Troy's story, we interviewed his uncle, and here he is describing him. Troy, was, he is a pretty good worker, I mean, for his helping people do things around. and You know, he is a kind of jivey person, if you know what I mean, is sort of comical. Mm-hmm. It is very friendly and is very trust, trustful. He trusted, put his trust in other people further sometimes than he should. And I think that was a great contributor to his downfall, you know, and his disappearance. Just, you know, sometimes you should not trust people when you do trust them, you know, and that is per- pretty much it. And, uh, like I say, his family all thought the world of him. He was greatly missed. People had a great compassion for him, too. You know, because he was not a mean individual. He was sort of like, uh, uh, everybody tried to look out for him. <laughs> you know, his mother had passed away when he was young. And there's no telling how much a bearing that may have had on his, him and his other siblings is like, you know, when they were very young, what Troy was probably about four, maybe five when his mom passed away. And they grew up and didn't, didn't have the best of life, you know, because uh, the upbringing was just like from here to there. My, my mother, his grandparents, had uh, stepped in a lot of times and helped uh, with them, raising them when they were raised up. You know, his his, dog, his uh, sister, rather, was only about two years old, maybe two and a half, when his mom passed away. And, you know, that makes siblings be closer together a lot of times than ordinarily would be. You know what I mean? So at the time, Troy was living with his girlfriend in Hope County. On the night of February 26, 1996, it was reported that Troy was headed to a gas station in Red Springs, North Carolina. Some reports say that he was seen at a BP gas station that night on Highway 211 in Red Springs. At the time, he was wearing a long-sleeved, light blue, dark blue, and white zip-up shirt, black jeans, Nike sneakers, and a Tar Heels baseball hat, which I won't hold against Troy since I went to Duke. Yeah, you better continue the story even though he was a Carolina fan. Fine. So, he was seen getting into a different vehicle than the one that he actually arrived in with his friend that night. So, the car he ended up getting into was a black Pontiac Grand Prix that had multiple people in the car, but they were never identified. And according to his girlfriend and other friends that he was around that night, he was never heard from that night and has never been seen since February 26th. From the very beginning, his family was wary of the story, you know, told by the friends and the girlfriend about Troy's disappearance. First, 
Troy actually told his father earlier that day that he went missing that he was in some trouble with some folks possibly involving drugs or money and that he was just concerned for his safety. And secondly, it was the middle of the night and the store that, you know, we're talking about here usually closed around 1030 p.m. So it was kind of weird for him to have been reported going to the store to pick up cigarettes or to get anything else when the store would have been closed. So the family knew that something was off just a day or two later when Troy did not show up to meet his daddy as promised. So here's his uncle talking about the realization that he was missing and his family reporting it to the sheriff's department. I believe the last time he was over at his dad's house, not far from where I live here, that Monday. And he went home that Monday night. And the next day, he was supposed to come back to his father's house, and he never showed up. So then, like the next day, he got very suspicious about it because Troy didn't usually... You know, if you promise you something, pretty much, it, you know, a couple of days ain't going to go by without him getting in contact with you or either, uh, you know, you're knowing something, knowing what's going on, and it just went from there. Then he got to, he come here and was talking about it and called the sheriff's department, you know, to report that. And then, you know, it takes a while, a few days or so before they get real serious about something. Because you ain't got no evidence of no wrongdoing at that time. And then, yeah, a few, I just remember just how long it were. It weren't very long. And then's when they started the investigation. And then's when that lady told it. his girlfriend said that this person came there at night with him. And said that Troy made a statement to her. I don't reckon they're going to kill me. And as his uncle mentioned, it actually took a few days for, you know, the department to take the report seriously because there was no signs of foul play, which was also the case in Jessica's disappearance as well. And one interesting thing in Troy's case, though, is that his car, which was a 1993 Toyota Camry, went missing as well. So as we mentioned, he was last seen getting into a Pontiac on the night of his disappearance. So, you know, it leads us to ask the question, what happened to his car? And if found, I bet it would lead to clues to what happened to him. But without that, there's absolutely no physical evidence. So both Troy and Jessica's cases lacked any physical evidence to give any proper leads onto what happened to them. And both cases have been plagued by speculation and rumors. And there's a lot of things goes on in a lot of young people's lives that uh, shouldn't go on, but it does. And he got taken off there one night with uh, this person came to his house. And uh, what always got me about the situation there is why would you go to somebody's house very late at night to go get cigarettes or something other it was at a uh, store that you knew pretty much the store was closed. Or you know, every time I went by the store, it was closed, especially it's about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and he just never showed up again, you know. And the individual that take him off there uh, said that he got someone out of his car into another, and it was never seen. He's never been seen before by family member. Now, that was what he said. You know what I mean? And then, uh, so what they did, it was a setup to get him away from the house. And Troy was, a, was kind of naive. You know, you could persuade him to go out to out here to get a Coca-Cola or something you know, like that. And he just trusted the father. That's all he was wanting to do, you know. That's not the thing. 
So uh, I, I feel like it was real upset. I think a trap to get him away from the house. And once he got him away from the house, you know, God knows what happened or, and where it may have happened. And when I'm speaking with these families, like I just can't imagine the pain of hearing all the different rumors and, you know, what happened to their loved ones. And for Troy's family, they've heard everything from he's been fed to hogs, he's been buried in some cemetery in Red Springs, and, you know, even talks of him being stuffed in some random septic tank. All these things you would never, ever want to hear about someone you love. And also, I think that hearing rumors like that would probably make you go a little bit... I don't know crazy because I mean it, you would I would assume you would be wanting to push law enforcement to investigate these rumors but then it seems like there's so many different rumors that it would almost be hard to investigate all the different ones and so I just would imagine this would make the situation even more difficult and so over the years the family has tried to keep Troy's investigation alive and his uncle said that the Hope County Sheriff's Department has exhausted every single lead but that they have refused to get the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation involved he was told by the sheriff that they would not be able to do anything more than the sheriff's department would be able to do. And his uncle went as far as to call the SBI himself to see what it would take for them to be involved in the case to help out the department. And he was told that all it took was an invitation from the sheriff's department. But so far, that's not happened at all. And another interesting thing I learned from his uncle was that anytime any progress is made in Troy's case, the lead investigator actually moves or is let go from the department and it just keeps stalling progress on the case. It would get close to making our arrest because they stayed in close communications with us. He would, he would demote them, he would fire or he would transfer them. And we asked him about that. He said it's violating the department policy. From the beginning, the family has tried to work with Q and the Sheriff's Department to conduct searches based on different things they've heard over the years and follow up on things that people in the community tell them. We also, with Q involved, we did several ourselves also. But now, usually they would be David uh, or either in close contact or either with us so most of the time would be out looking I think two I think two three maybe four times we did that but anywhere we got a tip that it could have been you know we would take go into that era like community searches thing always got my mind and I can't understand why it wasn't explored further. Elisha Dow called me one day, and he told me, I believe it was the night before, I should have wrote that date down, but, I, and, but the person who picked Troy up from his house, where Elisha lives, is not too far away from where Troy lived, and behind his house is well, Elisha's where he lived. There was a lot of woods land. And he heard there's a mobile home over there close to his home. And this guy called him. There's somebody prowling around over there around the edge of the woods with a four-wheeler. And he said this was somewhere about 11 o'clock, 11.30 that night. All right. Well, this was right about the time that uh, it got the FBI involved, the FBI involved here, 
And they had contacted me, all right, and Elisha called me, and we went back there. Well, this guy's going to tell you about the four-wheeler. He was out there riding around the edge of those woods, and Elisha owned that property back there, the most of it anyway. And he went back there to see what the guy was doing, and he said he had, it was on a four-wheeler, and he had several weapons on him. And he told me, he said, this guy's a convicted felon is not supposed to have weapons. He called the sheriff's department. Two deputies came out, and he tells them, he, he helped the guy there with it, you know. But he, he tells this guy, the deputies of what this guy's involvement uh, was suspected to be. Now, this was probably a year or so later down the road. And these deputies are not... Uh, aware of the situation, but Lysha briefed them on it. They still let the guy go, didn't confiscate his weapons, and do no further investigation. To me, now that, you know, that didn't look very smart. You know what I mean? And since Troy's disappearance, his daddy has actually passed away, as well as all four of his grandparents and one of his sisters. So many family members went on without ever knowing what happened to their son, their grandson, or their brother. Troy would be 47 years old today, and for 25 years his family has hoped someone would come forward and tell them where he is so that he can be properly brought home. Maybe what you're doing here might shine some light on it. Somebody may come forward. If this late in the game, you know, there might be somebody out there that's not as fearful to say something now. It would have been 10, 15 years ago. Our thoughts continue to be with Troy and Jessica's families until answers about their disappearances are revealed. If you have any information about their disappearances, please come forward. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Red Justice Project.